Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Yvonne, with your nice, beautiful plants behind you there. Yes. Green things make me happy. Real or fake? One is real. One is real and one is fake. I almost bought a wall-hanging vase just to put behind me, just to make you happy, Yvonne. I like green things, especially when I'm trapped (laughs) at home all the time. Then you probably like our guest shirt today. We we are being joined today by Mike Bouchon, who has on a green shirt. And it is not St. Patrick's Day, so you're not allowed to wear that shirt until tomorrow. (laughs) Thank you very much. It does say that the sea is angry today, my friends. (laughs) The sea is angry today. So today we are going to talk about some stuff to deal with feedback, some communication type things, because I think it's really important to cover some of this stuff for our poor, sad listeners out there in radio land. You don't know if they're sad. Maybe they're happy. (laughs) Maybe they are happy. (laughs) Who can tell? So let's begin here. So Mike, you're well known for being, for having radical candor. I mean, I know you've managed me. You've been my manager before, and you're pretty radical about your candor. So talk to us about about radical candor a little bit and the ability to provide and take feedback. Sure. I mean, the whole idea behind radical candor is that we we don't do ourselves any favors if we sugarcoat things, if we hold back. Um, A lot of people understand that they need to be effusive with their praise when they're saying something that's, you know, that's going to make the person feel good. That's an easy thing for us to do. It is way harder to engage with somebody if you have to give them critical feedback. Um, and so the, the notion behind radical candor is that if you really want to embrace people, that if you really want to help them grow, if you really want to build an authentic relationship, you've got to be you know, honest to the point of being radical. And if we can do that, then then a couple of things will happen. Right? One, you'll, you'll see growth in individuals as they get information that's more valuable to them. And two, the piece that I think people really underestimate is that you'll pull people closer to you because you start to develop um, a more authentic relationship when it's more full. And if you do that, then, then I think it, it, it changes the nature of how you interact. It changes the level of trust and it really opens up what the relationship can be. I've heard someone say before that with the current generation, they don't care what you're saying until they know that you care <laughs> about them as a person. And I think that's really true. I mean, there were times in the past where people cared about what you said and they couldn't care less about you as a person. They just listened to what you said. And if it was true or not true, they evaluated that and they tried to make decisions based on it. I think in today's world, much more than ever before, it's much more a matter of people, they don't really care what you say. They don't really care if it's true or not. They just care if they, you care about them as a person. If you care about them as a person and you show that, then they'll be interested in what you have to say. Well, and I don't I don't know that that's even a generational thing. I think that is something that has always been true. I think the difference is we are more willing to talk about those components of ourselves now than we used to be. Um, you know, we're, I think there's more of an awareness of the emotional components to us as human beings. And I think a lot of that is good. I'm not going to say it's all good all the time. But I do think we're whole beings who come into work as whole people with positives and negatives. And and we bring that with us 
whether we want to admit it or not. And so I think there's just an acknowledgement that this is how people are. And I think in general, that's good. So I, I wouldn't say it's a, a new thing or even a generational thing. I just think it's something that we're more willing to talk about. That's Yvonne's take. Yeah, so I've, I've built organizations a few times now. What's amazing to me is the number of people who go through their entire careers fostering transactional relationships where the primary point of the interaction is whatever the project is. It's what do I need? And so that whole idea of trust, and I don't care what you say unless you prove that you care about me. I think we've bred that through essentially decades of building out um, transactional organizations. Um, obviously, once the transaction's gone, there's people that remain. And if you really want to unlock your like real capability, if you really want to unlock untapped potential in your network, if you can get past the transactions, then then you start to, to really build relationships. And I'll give you one like really easy example. Uh, years ago, I was at Juniper and I was working on a, a board of directors presentation. These are highly scrutinized. Um, we have, you know, we were reviewing it with, let's say, five EVPs, and I was the, the director level person who was making the slides. Um, when we finished up one particularly painful review that was going to force a complete rework over the weekend, uh, we exited the conference room at the end of this building. Stefan Dykerhoff, at, the point, uh, at that point EVP at, at Juniper, we had to walk from the end of the building down to, he was going to go see the CEO. He was going to drop me off at the elevators partway along the way. In that moment, in that, that 30 seconds of walking, anybody would have talked to me about the slides to make sure that I had what I needed. You know, are you going to be done over the weekend? In that 30 seconds, what he chose to talk to me about was my surgically repaired right shoulder. He asked me how my shoulder was doing, which was completely unexpected. And whether he intended it or not, by asking about my shoulder and not the presentation, what he started to build was a relationship that was beyond just the transaction. And he didn't know it, but in that 20 seconds it took us to walk, he secured my commitment over the weekend. Um, anything we can do that, that bridges beyond the transaction will, will bring a, 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 a degree of loyalty it just doesn't exist because we all know when somebody just wants something from you. Um, that one moment has shaped how I lead teams for the rest of my career. And it's something that if you were to talk to Stefan, he wouldn't even remember because he did it naturally. It's just a, a normal course of interacting with people. You know, Mike brought up when he was talking about radical candor that um, we are often taught to, um, you know, say positive things about one another. And, and it's good to be positive and to encourage but I've always been hypersensitive about, and I'll make a distinction between a compliment and flattery. And, and in my mind, flattery is a syrupy, disingenuous. It's transactional. It is transactional. And one of the things I've said about flattery is in its attempt to manipulate somebody with their own pride. You want to, <laughs> it's like you're going to tell them they're great so that you can get something back out of them or so that they'll think something of you. I think when we're talking about radical candor, we often talk about telling people the bad things, but there's also telling people good things too. And something I have tried to make a point to do is to never flatter. You know, I would rather be quiet than to flatter somebody in a way that's disingenuous. But if I see somebody do something that I think is truly great, I will tell them because my challenge personally 
is I, I, I disdain flattery. I don't want to be told something just because somebody feels like they need to say that. But that also makes it difficult to take a genuine compliment. And so for me, genuine compliments, they matter. And, and again, like to, to speak to somebody about something they do great and do it in a way that's genuine, that is specific, it will also help develop the kind of relationships that Mike is talking about. Um, and, and you just have to watch for it. And, and we all have those moments where you see somebody do something like, man, they're great at that. I wish I was great at that. Instead of being like jealous, like just go, hey, you're great at that. I wish I could be more like that. When you did this thing, it was it was amazing. And these are the things that you're good at. And then when you have to be radical, have radical candor in another direction, you, you then have some credibility to do that, right? So that's the other side of radical candor. Yeah. I think, I think it's made worse, Mike, when you talk about transactional nature of relationships and how we make relationships transactional now, I think it's made worse by the service, um, the sharing economy, because now everything is a transaction, right? If I want someone to pick something up from the store for me, I don't call my next door neighbor and say, hey, can you pick up milk? And I build a relationship with my neighbor. Instead, I call DoorDash or shipped or whatever the, I don't really care what the service is. And I get somebody to pay, I pay somebody to do that for me. And so I've converted what used to be a friendship relationship into a transactional one. It's the same thing with Airbnb, good or bad. You know, it's great to be able to go to other cities and, and find a house to stay in for, through Airbnb. But in some sense, we used to do that by just finding friends in that city that would let us stay with them. And so we've kind of taken the person out of those relationships in a real way. And I think this is something that makes it harder for us today because we're used to paying people to do things that used to, we would have asked a friend to do. And we would have built relationships through those asking and, and giving type of situations. Yeah, when I, I talk to folks about leadership a lot, one of the, in fact, if you listen to anyone who's a, who, who takes leadership seriously, they'll talk to you about the idea of being intentional. Um, being deliberate, you know, doing things uh, out of thought, not out of reaction. Um, we have these, we've built up such muscle memory around a lot of our interactions that it actually makes it difficult to, to bridge past the transactional bits. Um, an easy example, you're walking, well, post-COVID maybe or pre-COVID, you're walking down the hall at work, you know, you see somebody, you ask, how are you doing? Um, before you don't even stop to have like an authentic exchange. You pass each other. The person kind of shouts back over their shoulder, I'm doing fine, thanks. There's nothing about that exchange that is actually meaningful. If you take that exact same situation and say, how can you invest seconds at a time to build out your relationships? When somebody asks me how I'm doing, I'll pause for a moment. Even if I'm going to say, fine, I'll think about it. I'll say, you know, today I'm doing fine. Even that, that subtle reframing means that you get an authentic interaction with, in just a few seconds. And the thing about relationships I think people don't understand is it's not, the, it's not the magnitude of touch that matters. It's the frequency of touch. In psychology, sometimes called the drip method, the idea that the more frequently you, you talk to somebody, the more frequently you experience something, the more likely you are to remember it. A good example, um, I, was at the, I go to the airport a lot in, in normal times, took 140 flights in 2019. Every morning I would go and buy a, an iced tea when I got up before I got on the plane and I would have this short 15 second interaction with the woman who worked at that particular stand. Every week 
sometimes a couple of times a week. And over the course of like six months or nine months, we developed a relationship. At no point did we ever talk more than two and a half minutes. My family and I were flying through the same airport to go on vacation. I had my wife and kids. Uh, we had built such a strong relationship through a series of really small interactions that when we showed up, this woman gave my kids a hug as if she had known us forever. Like it's the, it's the, the, the frequency of touch. And so if you can make the most of these, you know, 10 second, three second interactions, you will, you'll leave a mark. And if you start thinking about how you manage your career, um, building out a sincere network of people that not just know about you, but also care about you, that will give you a leg up in your career over any kind of meaningful time period. We, we don't, when we don't do that, when we take it for granted, when we're not intentional about our actions, when every relationship is transactional, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice, um, forgetting even the human aspects and all the positivity that comes out of that. Yeah. I'll even go further and say, not just in your career, but in your life, um, people who know me personally know that I've been through a rough time over the last year or so. And the people who came out of the work work and actually showed that they cared about me was very, very helpful in many ways. And, you know, not just close personal friends at church or whatever and seminary and this, that, and the other, but even people I've only met once or twice in my life. But because we have an ongoing relationship, I talk to them every week over something, whatever it is, you know, they expressed a level of caring that I didn't expect. And I think that was really helpful through those through those very rough times. When I think there's something that we have to do to build those kinds of relationships that that Mike is talking about for with, with the barista, for example, and that is you have to notice those people. Like so often, we will go through a checkout or we will uh, do a routine. And we don't even like we couldn't pick the person who gave us our coffee out of a lineup if our life depended on it, because we never stopped to notice them. And so there are small things. Eye contact. How are you today? Listening to their response. And those things don't take a ton of effort, but they do take a, a degree of intentionality and a willingness to step out of whatever world we're into, whatever podcast we're listening to whatever problem we're solving in our head to notice that individual. And the same thing happens um, in our personal lives as our professional lives, but just noticing and remembering. I know I had an experience where I met somebody who, um, who had started a job at VMware. I'd met them a year ago at a conference. My husband was traveling with me. They remembered my husband. They remembered what he did for a living. They remembered some of the conversations that they had. And I was, taken aback by that. And it was meaningful to me that they just remembered, you know, that who my husband was, what he did and how many kids we had. It's like, wow, you know, that's remarkable. And in our day and age, it is because we expect, especially conference interactions, to be very transactional. And it was incredibly meaningful. Yeah. Let me give you like another example just like that. How many of us have done something um, for somebody else at work? And then we deliver it to them via email. And then you get back the, the single word thanks with an exclamation point as if they're like really shouting thanks. Um, it's the worst possible response to give because it doesn't acknowledge the effort that went into it. It's, you know, it's, it's a muscle memory response. It's, it, it completes the transaction. It's merely you know, receiving, you know, I acknowledge that you've done for me what I had asked you to do. Um, you know, even taking a moment to write 15 words into a complete sentence that says, thank you for doing this thing. You know, I, I appreciate it. 
just changing it up so that it doesn't, so it's not like this autonomic response. Those exchanges will take what, what was a transaction and turn that into essentially a relationship. And if you do that, if you build up a personal brand around being authentic around that, it's going to give you freedom to do a lot more things in the future. In some cases, um, it means that you can share information that you might need to get off your chest. In some cases, you can make an ask for something that you, know, you need some assistance on. Um, in, in other cases, you know, you'll, they'll come to you for help, which actually will, will strengthen the relationship as well. But these little things that you do, the, it's the seconds and, and minutes that add up that I think really make a difference in a lifetime. Um, and I think it's it's a missed opportunity, frankly, for for anybody in. And I, again, I'm thinking about it in terms of organizations, but as Russ points out, even just life. But these are like these are the missed opportunities. And the difference in a, in a career perspective from the people at the very top of their game, um, everybody has roughly the same skill level. So it's not that it's gonna that, that it's gonna be a, a wildly varying degree of of talent at the top of of your career. What's going to happen is some people have put in more effort and made made you know sacrifices. Others take advantage of every moment that they get a chance to. And th th what you have to think about is how do you navigate that you know, over the course of your career? And I will tell you that, that the investment in well-placed seconds and well-placed minutes um, can get you the same results that other people will get you know, working nights, weekends, 70-hour work weeks for weeks and weeks and months and months on end. I just, I think being deliberate about how you, how you manage your interactions is like the easiest thing you can do to, to really become a happier employee, um, to be more settled in your career and then have really the burgeoning relationships around you to, to make everything happier. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, another thing that we don't think about is you said there for a moment, Mike, you talked about um, saying thank you for something someone has done. Well, what we often don't think about is we live in a very independent, particularly in IT, we all want to put our capes on and solve the problem. And we never actually want someone else to help because we want to solve the problem and we want to be known as the person who solved the problem. And a part of building a relationship is allowing other people to speak into your life through both positive and negative feedback, but also in allowing them to help you. Even though you can do it, just giving up and saying, you know what, I understand that I could get this done. And it may only take me 15 minutes. It may actually take them an hour to do it. You may actually be better at it than they are. It doesn't really matter who's better. What matters is, is when you allow someone to help you, you're building that relationship. You're making them see that you, they are an important person to you, that you trust them in a way that you don't trust other people necessarily, or, you know, you've gone beyond just the transactional level. Yep. And there's another point on that. Like when you talk about giving people feedback, I mean, how often, I, I know I'm guilty of this, but I think we all give feedback and the feedback is about us. It's not even about them. <laughs> so like you, you're, you're so struck by the way you feel about, you know, somebody should have done something differently that when you give the feedback, you're thinking about how it impacted you. You're not even thinking about the person you're giving feedback to. Even in that moment, that transaction's about you. It's a, it's a selfish transaction, even though you're giving that feedback to somebody else. Um, I had this, this moment, I was delivering a, a talk in a kind of a, a big audience at one point, and my boss, Spencer Green, um, I had just delivered this talk. And as you can imagine, my adrenaline was going, right? I, you know, when, you're, when you come off of one of these presentations, you know, you're just, you're buzzing. And he came up to me and he, he did something that no one had ever done to me before. He said, you know, Mike, I know this is a big talk and, and you probably have a lot of adrenaline. You know, are you open to getting feedback right now? And he just asked me, like, are you are you open to it? And it was such a thoughtful thing to do. 
because in that moment, I actually forced me to think. And I said, actually, Spencer, right now, I'm, I'm not open to it. Like right now, I'm still kind of coming down off the talk. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll hold it until later. And then he held that feedback until, you know, maybe an hour, hour and a half later, and then delivered it to me when I was in a better position to receive it. In that moment, he was so thoughtful about how I was, how I was feeling, what I needed to do, what I needed to hear, that when he gave that feedback, even though the feedback, you know, was, was obviously you know, somewhat critical talking about some performance things that I had done because he did it in such a caring way. I didn't take it as a negative thing. I actually was even more open to it. And that feedback, you know, I, I've held it, it shaped how I speak in every opportunity since, um, you know, that's kind of going back to that radical candor. I mean, he was so generous in the way he provided it that, that I accepted that feedback in, there was such a trusting relationship between us that it, I didn't put up any defensiveness and it made it much easier for me to action that feedback. And my speaking career has been forever different because of literally asking the one question, are you open to hearing feedback right now? And it's interesting. So I think of a, a speaker that I heard and I actually heard this at a, at a marriage event. Um, and, and the statement was love acts for the betterment of its object. And, and often love is not the word that we use in a professional context and, and mostly rightfully so. But, but the point is that when you want the best for somebody, you act for their betterment. And I think just to dovetail along with what Mike was saying is that when you give somebody feedback, are you just trying to vent because you feel like you need to say a thing because they did a thing you didn't like? Or are you communicating in a way to make that person better? And you can tell the difference. And so if you come to a hard conversation, and, and yes, you do need to be honest and you do need to be upfront, but if you're speaking in a way with the best interest of the person you're speaking to in mind and you really genuinely desire their good, it will frame everything you say. And it will become obvious to the person that you're communicating with that you really are seeking their uh, the best outcome for them, and it shapes everything you do. And so, so just like Mike's example, are you are are you open to hearing this right now? Like he really wanted you to hear it, and he was really wanting you to hear it so that you could be a better speaker, right? Mm -hmm. Not because he had, he wanted to pound his chest and go, oh, "I know better than you," right? <laughs> Yeah, it's the, I think giving feedback with, with, with an attentiveness to the other person, it's just, it's, it's not easy. I feel like I went through the first two thirds of my career so far, you know, and it was mostly about me, the, the, my ego and the arrogance that I, that I had not always, you know, explicitly, but sort of implicitly and, and sometimes under the covers, but, but only barely. So um, I feel like I just had a lot of disingenuous interactions I think I probably thought I was doing better than I was. I probably made more mistakes than I thought I was making. And I was successful despite all of that, um, which was because the people around me had the patience to deal with me. Um, you know, if I look at the, the last, you know, say third of my career, um, I still struggle with my ego every day. I still make probably more mistakes than, than I'd like to, but I'm more thoughtful about how I interact and the loyalty that I've, I've engendered around me has really helped me succeed. And so if I look at the, the teams that I build, I've got literally dozens of people who've, who've said they're willing to bet their, their careers, or at least this chapter in their career, 
on me. And I, I take that very seriously. I think that that loyalty is is because of the relationships you know, that that underpin it. And I feel like it's been a, a difference maker for me personally. Um, I just I wish more people were were thoughtful and you know again intentional. They they thought about you know what they were doing because that 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 degree of in the moment thinking about things it adds so much to your interactions. It adds so much to the organizational dynamic. And I think it it, it can be the difference between you know high performing teams and, and merely adequately performing teams. Yeah. So so a lot of this revolves around the role of psychology in shaping communications, right? And just what the psychology of interacting with other people is. Uh, it seems to me that this is that this is where we end up going a lot of times when we talk about candor, managing, providing feedback, building relationships, right? I mean, is there more to be said on the psychology of, of shaping communications that you would put yeah, out there? I- Everything I when I think about psychology, so I, I I think about a lot of stuff when I'm when I'm interacting and communicating with people. Um, you know, the there's a book that I that I really rely on a lot. The book is called Switch by Dan and Chip Heath. Um, the book is about making change when change is hard. It's about how do you what's the psychology that underpins how people think about things, and can you use the psychology to essentially steer outcomes? And there's a lot of really great stories in this book. Um, I'll, I'll use one just as a, as a good example. They, and I'll probably get the story a little bit off. So if you've recently read the book, forgive me my, my, uh, my creative memory here. Um, they it, it tell us one story about a, a set of like a conglomerate, a bunch of operating companies that come together. So they, they act autonomously and they've got, let's say, 13 companies working in the mining and manufacturing space. Um, one of the the things they've done as an organization is they've distributed ownership of the budget. So they make in, independent decisions on you know, how to purchase things. Uh, the nice thing about that is everybody gets complete control over procurement. They can manage their, their budgets, which gives them the sense that they, they aren't dependent on somebody else. Everybody kind of likes that. Of course, the disadvantage of that is if you don't centralize your budgeting, then you don't get any kind of um, economies of scale. And so you're left to the individual negotiating practices of each company, and that can lead to inefficiencies. They agree as a group that they're going to consolidate their their purchasing, right? Which meant that everybody was have to, would have to give up some control over the process, but they everyone agrees that this makes sense. Somewhat, you know, not surprisingly to me is when they go and they try that, everybody, you know, eventually kind of rebels against this because they they don't want to give up their control. So to make the point, they call a meeting, they picture this boardroom with a bunch of people around the board around the table, and the guy takes a box. And it's filled with gloves. What he's done is purchased one glove for every type of glove any of the operating companies purchases. He purchased a, that, that one glove and put the price tag on it. Um, when he turns it over on the table, people are, are shocked by two things. One, how could we possibly need 37 different types of gloves? Because from their perspective, you know, it's like, isn't one or two types enough? And the second thing, which is even you know, kind of more specific, in some cases, they would have you know three of the same type of glove with three different prices on it because different companies had negotiated their own deals. And of course, that makes no sense. When we argue logically to try to get people to, to move our direction and to adopt our point of view, we have some success. But then we know that there's some emotional thing that's underpinning that, in this case, the need for control. What he did was he short-circuited that need for control by creating this visceral moment where people are forced to stare down the truth in front of them in a way that they can't avoid or explain away. 
by creating that visceral moment, what he does is changes the entire conversation. That's leveraging psychology in a way that's, that's really powerful to allow people to reach a conclusion that's different than what they had previously reached. Um, you see, we're all wired. We know these cognitive biases, um, choice supportive bias, confirmation bias, um, you know, recency bias, survivorship bias. All of these biases are essentially hardwired to reinforce the decisions we've already made. In, in essence, we believe what we think primarily because we think it. <laughs> Um, what he was allow allowing people to do was to create this, this break between our own cognitive biases, what we already are hardwired to think evolutionarily, and then what the truth was. And that, that moment of, of using psychology to advance his agenda allowed him to be more effective in a conversation that otherwise would have been thorny. When I think about psychology, like that's, these are the types of examples I, I gravitate to because you can manufacture these moments if you're specific and deliberate and intentional, and you can get people past you know, some of their, our, our worst instincts, some of our, our tightest held beliefs. Well, and I, I think about this a lot. In, in my early days, I would not read fiction because I felt like fiction was frivolous, um, that it was just for entertainment. <laughs> and I wanted to read stuff that was real, you know, and, and what I have come to see over time is that there are ideas and concepts that are best communicated through fiction and story. And it's why when you're learning to write, they tell you to show, don't tell. And so often we try to tell people and to interact with their rational minds. And if they just understood that, that you know, rationally, they would change their behavior. But, but that's not how people work. Yeah. And so this is that's, a, that's a perfect example of showing and not telling and allowing people to discover for themselves why it matters. You can't just you can't just tell them. You have to lead them on a path of discovery that resonates with them. Go ahead, Russ. Uh, this is where I think we get into marketing and product management a lot of times is that most technology companies want to build a spreadsheet of features and say, this is my feature set. You know, and they don't really talk about a storyline, whereas successful products and successful people tell stories. This is why when you present something, you have to tell a story. You can't just throw facts on the screen. You have to tell a story. You have to say, this is the beginning, this is the middle, and this is the end. It may not be like a fiction book where you're telling a use case, because that's what we tend to go to, but it has to be still a cogent story. This is a problem. This is your solution. I want to explain the problem to you and get you to hook the problem. Get Take ownership of that problem and realize that you actually have that problem. And then I'm going to give you a set of solutions. And they may be technical solutions, but it's still given to you in a narrative format. It's not given to you in a, I'm just going to dump this information on you and you're done. So I think that's a really important uh, piece of the psychology you're talking about there, Mike. Yeah, I, I talk to a lot of folks like on my team. I'm in a product management organization. And so, you know, a lot of times we have ideas. Um, and this notion of selling, we think of this as the interaction between, say, the vendor and the customer. Um, but this is actually true in all of our careers um, and even our personal lives, by the way. Um, I tell the people on my team that everybody here is a salesperson. You might not be selling a product. But it could be the thing that you're selling is your idea. And if your, your customer might not be buying, they may just be deciding whether they agree or disagree. But if they don't agree with you, then you have to decide, you have to reach a, a conclusion. Do I have a, a, a product problem? Is it, the, is it the right idea or the wrong idea? And if you're convinced it's the right idea, 
Then the, the next thing is then you have a sales problem. And we think about how we communicate. You know, we know that if we were trying to sell to somebody, those of us who've, who've been in these selling situations, you know, the, the perfect first sales meeting is the customer talking for 55 out of the 60 minutes about their problems and their their plans. And so you understand what they're interested in and their pain points and all of these things, because then you can orient your solution to, to what they need. But somehow when we're selling these ideas, we don't spend the same time. We, you know, as Yvonne pointed out, we, we just explain the, the logic. We don't, we, we tell, we don't show. And so without spending any time, you know, understanding our, our customer or our, our, the other person's point of view, what they care about, you know, what are their constraints? What are the things they're they're worried about in that moment, we just tell them our idea and we hope that the, the logic will carry the day. And if it doesn't, we we think we'll, we'll, we'll somehow break through by reiterating it, you know, sometimes a little bit slower and maybe a little bit louder. Um, but I think as you think about like, like your interactions, and this can be with your spouse, with your kids, you know, with your colleagues, with your friends, you know, if you have a thing that, that you're passionate about and you're confident it's the right thing, if people don't agree with you, you need to then reconcile. It could be you have the wrong idea, um, or it could be that you're just not connecting with the person and you need to, to explicitly start asking more questions instead of doubling down on telling it in a different way. A different analogy isn't going to get you over the line. Asking some questions, getting some open-ended questions, that, that's going to be what, what pushes through. And I think in a, in a professional context, you know, this is often the difference between the individual who is off on their own, has the perfect idea, but can't get the rest of the organization to rally, and somebody who takes an idea that might be bankrupt, but somehow manages to get the whole company rallied around it. I'd rather see you know, tremendous support and execution around an imperfect idea than no support and no execution around you know, what's objectively a, a perfect path forward. Well, if I was a customer once, I was in a conversation with, with a vendor. Just one time, right, Yvonne? Well... I'm telling a story of one time and we were were in an executive briefing center, right? And I was the technical person and my leadership was all around and, and uh, we were talking frankly about a competing product and, uh, and, and the sales team for the vendor was like, yeah, but what are your requirements? And, and it set me off because I'm like, this is not about a specific list of requirements. It's about the ability to do things differently than we have done them before. And I think technically, sometimes we just want to say, well, come to me with your requirements. Give me, give me these specific problems to solve in these specific formats in this way that is palatable to me, and I will solve your problem and give you something back. But, but that the, the challenge of this particular org was having is that their competition had come in and seen a problem in a new way and solved it in ways that didn't fit their categories. And so sometimes we have to step back and we have to relax our categories a bit and listen and understand because the ground is constantly moving under us. And so we have to change and shift with it. And the only way to do that is is to listen and to understand, as opposed to like force people into our existing rubric. Right, right, or even our existing narrative. Sometimes you have to take your narrative and bring that other person in and make them the hero. But the, and there's again, so going back to the psychology comment, I mean, there's real psychology that underpins this. The cognitive biases, like. Um, like it's like choice, choice supportive bias, the idea that we believe our own choices are, we're going to see evidence that, that supports the choices we've made. 
if you can make something somebody else's idea, then it 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 allows them to to move forward without having to reconcile why they were wrong in the past. If your idea, if your path forward is dependent on somebody acknowledging and even realizing that they were wrong, you need to understand that the psychology behind that is actually very challenging. People will not usually reach that conclusion, which is why you'll have experiences where everybody agrees, you know, you know, if A, then B, if B, then C, therefore D, you can get them all along. And then when you get to the conclusion, they're like, yeah, I don't agree with you. Uh, this, this is this, this is psychology, and I think people need to understand that there's ways you can you can leverage that by by merely knowing you know, how people you know interact. Um, it really is a if you construct it well, you can make things a lot easier on yourself. Um, and then there's there's one other example. Um, there's this book is there's a book called Better, which is about surgery um, and like a neurosurgeon, and they look at. Um, you know, the, the number one cause of death in hospitals. It turns out the number one cause of death in hospitals is infection. And it turns out the ways to, to fight off infection are fairly standard. You know, you wash your hands, you train people on you know, proper protocol, whatever. So they go to a hospital, they observe it for some number of, of weeks, and then they, they make a list of, you know, 23 things that they should go do to drive infection rates down. They give it to the hospital. It's things like, you know, moving the sink and putting signs up and training and whatever else. So they implement the 23 things and then lo and behold, you know, six weeks later, the infection rates are the same. And so you, you wonder like, well, <laughs> if you did all these things, like why were the infection rates the same? So they run the experiment again with a different hospital. This time, instead of telling people, here's the 21, 23 things you need to do, they simply, you know, release the findings and then have the group, you know, what would you do about it? And so they come up with the same list of 23 things, but in this case, it's their own list. And so then when they do it, then infection rates plummet 90%. The psychology around it being your idea as opposed to you know, their idea, um, that's, that's powerful. And as you think about how you want to land change in an organization, as you think about how you want to land change in your own kid's behavior, making them complicit <laughs> in the path like, or in, in the solution is going to, again, psychologically, it's going to create an advantage for you. you know, of course, I, I struggle with my ego. I have to give up my pride of authorship. I don't get to take credit for it. But if I'm actually committed to the outcome and not the credit, then it's actually, it turns out it's a better path for me and for everybody else. I would say that, that people need to be aware of what, the, of what the psychology says, not just what the words are and thinking you can wordsmith your way around any situation. Right, right. And a lot of the problem is we somehow think this is the last good idea I'll ever have in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Or the first. <laughs> or the first. Yeah. Whatever the case is. Whatever. <laughs> or that, you know, or that I've missed the boat. Or if only if I'd have seen this a year ago or, or two years yeah. ago. And, you know, I mean, there are always opportunities, I think, to change and grow. And um, it's it's interesting. We've talked a lot about biases today. And we tend to believe if we're aware of our biases, it will change our behavior. And the truth is awareness helps, but it doesn't make the bias go away. Just because I realize I have a recency bias doesn't mean the next time you ask me a question, I'm not going to bring to mind the things I've most recently seen or read or heard or done. And so I think what, what Mike is talking about is how do we build systems or how do we use those natural tendencies to our benefit as opposed to just acting like they don't exist or we can just somehow we're special and we're not going to fall prey to them. Right. We, yeah. we just have to accept that they're a reality and then figure out how to work with those as opposed to pretend they're not there. 
Well, yeah. there's, there's really tactical things you can do. So if, if recency bias is a thing, then holding your idea until you know something happens where the idea naturally builds, you'll have a greater chance of success. This is why we tend to see huge lobbying efforts you know, immediately following some tragedy. Um, you know, using simulations where people can experience the behavior allows you to force everybody into the same experience. And so if you're looking at processes, then developing a, a simulation or even a gamed model where people can experience the inefficiencies of the process um, in that moment, then that allows you to, to plant the seed immediately after. You know, there are structured ways, and this is some of what consultants do, by the way. You know, they're gifted in, in manufacturing these moments. But as an individual, if you become you know, skilled or even just aware of how to do this, then you can, can take advantage of the situation so that you can better land the points that you think you need to land. And, and hopefully, you know, you, your friends, your family, your colleagues will all, will all end up in a better place because of it. Cool. Well, with that, I think we should wrap up because I know we all have meetings to go to, right, Mike? it's frequently the case it's frequently the case so Yvonne where can people get in touch with you if they want to follow what you're working on stuff like that sure yeah I'm on uh, LinkedIn you can find me at Yvonne Sharp or on Twitter at Sharp Network Um, I'm blogging somewhat infrequently at esharp.net I've got some ideas I'm kicking around that'll probably see the light of day soon but uh, I keep working on you Yvonne a little bit at a time that's good good and Mike, you don't blog or anything, right? I used to. Man, I used to blog <laughs> four, four days a week when I was allowed to, but it turns out they uh, they put the shackles on um, at, at public companies. Uh, I'm M. Bouchon on Twitter. Um, it's probably the best place to get a hold of me. All right, cool. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech and here at The Hedge. And thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.